Let me invite you to open your Bibles once again to Matthew chapter 13. Back in October, we began a series looking at parables that Jesus shared with his disciples that illustrate the principles of the kingdom of heaven. At the time, we uh, said that I shared with you that most scholars would say the idea of kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, uh, is, they're interchangeable. They are, they are speaking of, uh, of the same thing. They just are doing so in, in different, uh, different ways. We also define the kingdom as the reign of Christ in the hearts and the lives of God's people everywhere, realizing that the kingdom, in one sense, knows no geographic boundaries. It's not defined by geography, and it has no boundaries. Uh, it reigns wherever Christ reigns in the hearts of his people, which right now the kingdom is expressed perfectly or, or, or imperfectly in the church one day it will be expressed perfectly on all the earth, but that day has not yet come. We come this morning to the end of this series. If we, we look at our reading, it begins in verse 51. We'll read all the way down to through verse 52. So we'll, uh, we have a short passage this morning, but nevertheless, uh, important insights that will help us to wrap up or at least gain um, part of what Jesus wants us to understand uh, by his giving these messages to us. Matthew 13, verse 51. Hear the word of God. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. May the Lord give us understanding of his holy word. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we come and we ask for your presence and for your spirit to be alive and at work to illumine your word to our hearts and to our minds. For it is not enough for us to study you have told us that the secrets of the kingdom are mysteries that must be spiritually discerned. And so we ask that you would enable us to see what you would have us to see through the words that you have given to us. We also pray for the Spirit to apply this to us. For we have broken places in our hearts, in our lives, that perhaps we are not even aware of or aware we are not sure how to deal with. We know that all of your word is for the purpose of instructing and correcting and shaping and forming us to become more and more like Christ. It is, brings healing. It is life. And so, Lord, we pray that your word of life that you have given to us, even in this small dose, would be applied to our hearts to comfort that which is hurting to heal that which is broken, and to break and to renew that which has been hardened. Lord, all of these are true of me, not only of me, but all. So, Lord, we pray, demonstrate your grace and glory by speaking to us now. We pray in the name of the Word incarnated, Christ Jesus. Amen. Have you ever taken the time to look at stained glass art? It comes in a number of different forms. Some of it's very simple. 
We have had at times little pieces of stained glass that we would stick with a little thing onto the window in our kitchen. And so as the morning sun would come up, it would reflect the light through it. And we'd have different colors in different places depending on the uh, level of the sun in the sky through the window. Some of it is far more complex. If you were to go into some of the great European cathedrals and perhaps even a number of great cathedrals in our own country, there are tremendous ornate pieces of art uh, in the form of glasses. And in many of those places that there are a number of windows, each window telling, having a picture that tells a story and all of them together telling a, a larger story. But what's intriguing about stained glass is not just the picture that comes uh, when you can recognize what, uh, what they make up, but that each piece of the glass, each piece is uniquely shaped and beveled and colored in order to be beautiful in its own right and at the same time work with all of the others to contribute, to create a composite of the picture that we see. And so the art is in the craft as well as in the ultimate result. The reason that I, I share that or how that comes to mind is because as we have been looking at these parables, in, in many ways, I would liken them to stained glass because each of these parables is distinct in itself. Each one shows an aspect, a beauty of the kingdom. And yet, by the question that Jesus asked that we're going to look at this morning, we realize that Jesus also intends us not to have a bunch of information, but to see all of them as important but to see all of them together as well as they create a composite picture to help us to understand about the kingdom of God. Now, we've come to the end of all of the parables. Jesus, as, as we have come to this particular uh, text, has finished his teaching time, his discourse time, and he moves into a, another part with his disciples, kind of a, a summary and a wrap-up. And Jesus, after he finishes teaching all of the different parables, he asks them a question. He asks a simple question. He asks them, do you understand all of this? And as I said, it's a simple question, but it has some important implications for us to consider uh, as we also, by extension, are being asked this very same question. Do you understand all of this? First thing that I, I think that we need to see, in many ways it is foundation, perhaps it is is elementary, but we don't want to move on and assume anything. But by this question that Jesus is asking his disciples, he does tell us this, that knowledge about the kingdom is not enough. There's a difference between knowledge and understanding. Jesus didn't say, or didn't ask them, did you get it? Could you go and tell it? He asked them, do you understand? And by the word that he uses, I, I think that it's important for us to, to be able to answer his question. And there is a difference between knowledge and understanding. Many of you, maybe most of you, are, have probably seen the movie Good Will Hunting that uh, was written and produced by, uh, at that time, two young actors, uh, Matt Damon and, and Ben Affleck. They were it's impressive, not only because of the story itself, but the age that they were when they, they wrote this and produced, and then they also starred in the, in the, in the story as well in the movie. But it's the story of primarily of a, of a young man, his name is Will Hunting, who grew up in a very uh, problematic childhood. He 
we find in the movie is a genius, uh, has an intellect, particularly with mathematics, that is uh, off the charts, that he's, his, his capacity is uh, only shared by a handful of other people throughout the world. His, his genius is, is so great that it's, it's barely recognizable, although he also seems to have a photographic memory and can learn almost anything. Just unbelievably smart. But growing up, he had been abandoned and abused and passed from foster home to foster home. And in each of those circumstances, not only did he experience rejection, but in many of them, he also experienced physical abuse. And that shaped him and that hardened him. And so he was basically a loner with a group of friends. Not uncommon for somebody who grew up in a situation like that. He was angry, acted out in a number of ways, which got him in trouble with the law. And so early in the movie, we see him with a group of friends getting into a fight. In this case, Will Hunting breaks his, his probation and then is sent to jail where he's bailed out by a professor from MIT who had recognized, stumbled upon his genius and, and wants to take him under his wing and mentor him. Part of the, uh, part of the agreement to get him out is that he would be in, in counseling. I want to back up for a moment because this story is impressive, and that's just kind of the overarching theme of the story. But one of the things that's always intrigued me about this movie is that this movie has a number of gospel themes in throughout it, uh, and it's, 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 it's amazing to me because neither of the writers then or now profess anything that would resemble uh, an evangelical Christian faith. But in all stories, there is known as what's called a, a eucatastrophe. I don't expect you to remember that unless you're a William & Mary student in the arts, then it's probably beneficial for you to understand that. But a eucatastrophe basically means it's the disaster, it's the story. It's a picture of the gospel, a snippet of one aspect of the gospel. And, and they say that every story, every good story has that. And on a side note, for instance, you know, Superman is the story of people who are unable to help themselves. They're helpless people uh, who, are, uh, who are plagued by life, who need someone to come from elsewhere to live as one of them, become one of them, and to save them from themselves. It's in many ways a distortion. It's a, it's a picture of the gospel. It's a snippet of the gospel. Every great story has a picture of that. And I have found that in this film, in Goodwill Hunting, there are many, many pictures of the gospel that fit this category. Most profoundly is found in the relationship between Matt Damon's character, Will Hunting, and the psychiatrist or counselor, that Robin Williams plays in the movie. After being sent to the different counselors, Will Hunting, in his hardness, he works over several counselors, and they all quit, throw their hands up, and say, this kid is hopeless. And finally, the professor goes back to his college roommate, Robin Williams, who is both brilliant and as rough-edged as Matt Damon was, having grown up in the same neighborhood and also in a very broken home. Robin Williams engages this young man, and this young man is as hard uh, on Robin Williams as he has been on everybody else, but Robin Williams is able to take it. One thing that uh, happens in their first encounter is that Matt Damon's character looks at a painting that's on the wall behind Robin Williams' desk, and then he begins to analyze it, and then he begins to critique it and saying, I'm not sure about the colors, and, and he brings the different criticisms apart and saying, I don't know who, who, made, who painted that thing, but... You know, they must have been off the rocker. And I don't know what you paid for it, but that thing is a piece of trash. It's a ripoff. Robin Williams then says, uh, I painted it by numbers. Um, and having obviously struck a nerve, Matt Damon doesn't back down as if he, you know, remorseful, let off. 
He goes for the jugular. He puts on the steam, and he intensely tries to hurt and to offend Robin Williams. Robin Williams' response in this is not to take the offense and quit, but he loves the young man even more. The session is over, but he's intrigued. And so the next time they get together, they're out on a park bench, and Robin Williams is trying to cut to the heart, playing in many ways, doing exactly what Christ does for us, what the Holy Spirit does for us. He just exposes the heart of the young man and exposes the real condition that doesn't see immediate results but becomes a pivotal part of the movie. Robin Williams sits down with him, and he says, I can't begin to understand the depths of you unless you're willing to share he says, you know, if I ask you about art, you would just tell me everything that Michelangelo has done. But the truth is, you've never been in the Sistine Chapel. You don't know what it smells like in that place. You've never experienced it. I have, if I asked you to tell me about love, you would just probably quote one of Shakespeare's sonnets. But you have no idea what it is like to give yourself completely and unreservedly to another, and to have them give themselves to you fully and completely, and to become one in purpose, in mind, and really in essence. You have no idea of what that's like. And as they continue the conversation, which is very short, Robin Williams gets to his point, he gets up, and he walks off, leaving the young man to think about what he wants to do next. When Robin Williams demonstrates there is the emptiness of having knowledge but not having understanding. I believe that when Jesus is asking this question, he is bringing that to our attention as well. He says, do you understand all of these things? He's asking them, not did you just learn, not can you repeat, but he's asking them, do you understand? And understanding requires more than just exposure. It requires experience. It requires being shaped and impacted. I think that we need to realize that when Jesus is asking this question, implicit for the disciples and all who would be his followers, is that it's not enough to simply have knowledge. It's not enough to know the story or be able to retell the story. We need, as followers of Christ, to be able to experience and to understand each nugget, or maybe a better way of putting it is each plate of glass and the gospel contained in them in every story that he tells. This shapes our heart and this prepares us. We need to be those who ask ourselves, do you understand, not do I know? And ask ourselves that question regularly and not settle for being mere knowledgeable about our Bible not merely informed by our Bible, but formed by God's Word. That's when we understand. So I look at that, there's another thing, though, that we need to understand that, that it helps us to uh, at least uh, flesh out the, the fact that knowledge of the kingdom is not enough. And I would say this, as I, I look at this and I think through this, I think we see in, in this discussion that understanding the kingdom is really somewhat of a, a relative thing. By that, I mean it's not a specific level. 
It may mean one thing here and something else there. That, that makes some people uncomfortable. I know I'm not going down the road of relativism or postmodernism or anything else with that. But we need to understand and, and look at what takes place here and realize what it means to have understanding be a relative thing. If you look at the discussion, it, it, it's really kind of interesting. Jesus says to his disciples, do you understand all these things? And how do they respond? Yep, got it. If you were to give a quiz, give a test, I'd get an A. Got it all down. I can repeat the stories. We're ready to go. We got it. And Jesus doesn't, doesn't say, you know, yeah, right. Uh, um, he, doesn't, he doesn't confront them in any way about their understanding. But here's the question for you. Did they really understand? There's no way. If we look at the evidence in the rest of the Gospels, and we look at their lives, and we look even at their own writings, we realize that they, they had, in one sense, they had no clue what he was talking about. They took it all in. They heard it. But they didn't know. How do we know this? Well, when Jesus actually started experiencing serious persecution and was on his way to the cross, all of them abandoned him. All but one denied him. If we look at the conversations that took place on the way to the cross, all of them were continuing to ask questions about what's in it for me. I'm committing myself to your kingdom. I'm following you, Lord. I'm going to do what you tell me to do. But I want to know when am I going to pot the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow? When is this going to be profitable for me? When are we going to be in power? When are we going to become comfortable? When are we going to become popular? Those were the questions they were asking. In fact, some of them were audacious enough to ask, when are we going to actually be the ones in power? And the others got angry with him, not because they thought that it was an inappropriate question, but because they all wanted to be in power themselves. They just didn't have the guts to ask the question. They were all still self-absorbed. They were using the principles of the kingdom that Jesus had taught them, and they learned them all, but they were still revolving around themselves. They still wanted to know what was in it for them, not how is this going to bring glory to God and how is this going to really manifest the kingdom. They didn't get it. If you read their own epistles, Peter, John, later on, and they talk, and, and what they say at that point is far more profound than anything they say at any point during the Gospels. In fact, sometimes they even allude to the fact that we didn't know. We thought we knew. But when I look back, and from what I know now, I realize what I knew then, I didn't know anything. They didn't have their aha moment until after Jesus had raised and after Jesus had ascended. And then it began to click for them, and they began to put together all of the pieces. And then the depth and the glory and the beauty of all that Jesus was teaching them, which they appreciated, even though they didn't understand, began to connect with them and began to shape their hearts and their lives and then their ministry. Every aspect of their life took place after that point. But that's not what's taking place here. Jesus is asking them after this discourse, relatively early in the book of Matthew, and saying, do you understand? And they say yes. And they don't. And they do. They don't understand a lot, but they understand this. They understand what it is to be loved by Jesus. And they love him in response. They understand that Jesus is a treasure, that they may not understand what he's worth, but they know that he's worth everything, and they put everything behind him in order to be with him and to follow him. And they experience hardships along the way. And they have questions they don't understand, but they continually endure, so there is a level to which they do understand. They do not have profound understanding, but they do have simple understanding. They don't really understand, but they do understand at the same time. And when I think about that difference in their lives, it brings me a lot of comfort 
Because what it tells me is I don't have to be a great, profound theologian to experience the love of God in Jesus Christ. I can know a little and experience the blessings and the benefits that go with that. We simply know and love and value Jesus and the gospel of the kingdom, even if we don't know necessarily what that means. There is benefit in that. If we look at the disciples' lives, we also should be encouraged if you are like me and realize, I don't know what I know and what I don't know. What I do know is I don't know what I should know. Can you say that again three times? That's not in my notes. I did that all extemporaneous. Anyway, that's, uh, I don't even know what I just said. But anyway, that's, uh, but we look at the disciples who didn't know, who knew, who later know. And they are an encouragement to us because we realize by their example, if you know enough to love Jesus because he has loved you, and you know that Jesus is worth everything even if you don't know what everything is worth, and you're willing to follow him and walk with him, then his promise will be true, that you will grow, you will mature, your understanding will expand. Peter himself actually says this in, in a command form when he says, grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's perhaps looking back at his own experience and realizing what he didn't know, but now where he is, with that understanding, he realizes that there's quite a bit still yet to be known. But the disciples are an encouragement to us, and when I say that there's a relative, the understanding of the kingdom is a relative thing, I don't mean that what's true for you is not true for me. Truth is truth. But what I do mean is that we may be at different levels at different times. We may be in different levels from other people in terms of our understanding. But that does not ex- uh, uh, keep us from being a part or beneficiary of all of the promises of the kingdom that Jesus makes through the teachings of these. Jesus doesn't say you don't know enough. Jesus simply says yes, takes their yes, and allows them to live with that because he knows that he's going to grow them. And that same promise that is true, was understanding for them is true for you and for me. And the last thing that I want you to consider is this. It's, it, those were foundational and those are important, that we need to realize that knowledge about the kingdom is not enough and that our understanding is, in some sense, relative. The third, and, and I think really what Jesus was aiming at here is for us to understand is that understanding about the kingdom effectively mobilizes God's people toward mission. Now, some of you may be scratching your head and saying, where do you get that? Well, let's look at the discussion, or let's look what takes place after Jesus asks them the question and they give the response. Jesus comes to them, and he's finished his teaching. He's asked them the question, do you understand all of this? And they said, yep, we got it. Jesus then moves on, and he gives an illustration. It's also an application. And to me, it also seems very, very weird. If I was there that day, I'd have thought, okay, important truth, tuck this one away. I have no idea how that is related to what we've just been talking about. The reason I know that I would be that way had I been there with the disciples is because I was that way when I was looking at this text and studying this text. I'm looking and saying there's got to be a connection because it's the same conversation. I even did enough study to say, okay, is this one of those situations where the translators didn't break it, where they should have broken it? There are 
are some cases and the numbers are just put in the wrong places and it should start a whole new paragraph and it's not the case. This was the conversation that took place. They thought they understood. Jesus accepted their relative understanding and he moves on and he gives this illustration to them. He says, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. It doesn't seem to follow. But what I want you to see here is this. Jesus is saying, okay, those who understand, in response to their saying that they understood, those who understand, those are the ones who are, are trained. That's what training is. You gain understanding. Once you have understood, there is an effect that takes place. And there's a propulsion effect of understanding the gospel of the kingdom. Because what he's saying is, any scribe, anyone who is a teacher, anyone who now has been trained, to, and, and with, uh, trained, who's understanding, you're like the master of a house who has a treasure, and you bring it out to show both old and new. We go back to one of the parables. We began with this in the beginning of the series, but it was one of the later ones that Jesus taught, what is the treasure? Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's worth everything. And so the men were willing to liquidate everything they had in order to have the kingdom. And so if, they have, if you have understanding of the kingdom, you have the treasure. You have been equipped. You have been prepared. You have been trained. You now have it. And he says, everyone who has that treasure is like the master of a house. And so here's a, a new analogy, but he's saying it's like having people in. It's like engaging people. It's like having people involved in your life. And when they are involved in your life, there's just something that's within you that just pulls out your treasure and you show it to everyone who come, you come in contact with. It's a picture of evangelism. It's a picture of being engaged in mission. What Jesus is essentially saying here, and one thing we also need to understand is when Jesus teaches, he always teaches with more than, more than one level. And while he's teaching his disciples as to what is true of disciples, he also has in mind and probably uh, in, in, in view uh, the true scribes of the day. The Pharisees, the scribes, the ones to whom the law had been entrusted who were probably listening in but not participating. And he's making a contrast those who really have been prepared and trained, this is what happens. You actually share the treasure so that others may enjoy it as well. They had not. I believe that Jesus is teaching us here is that we, when we have an understanding of the kingdom, the natural effect on us is to delight in it to such a degree that we want to show others they may also delight in it. Understanding doesn't just make us sit back pensively and to contemplate and meditate upon the truth. That may be part of our understanding the value, but that's not what Jesus is saying is the effect. He's saying the effect is that it moves us to, to go and to show. We become living models and, and heralds of the glory and the treasure of the kingdom when we understand it. And the thing that's also interesting to me is Jesus doesn't say, okay, now that you've got it, here's the next step. Now go. There are places where he says go, and he sends them out. Jesus says here, this is what's going to happen. If you get it, this will be the effect. It's a natural byproduct for those who understand the kingdom is that we will be inclined, have a heart, have a desire 
to go and demonstrate the glory of the kingdom. All the principles, all the treasures, not just one truth, not even just the gospel message, but the whole truth, every aspect of the kingdom as we have opportunity. And he says, they'll show that old and new. What does he mean by that? I think in one sense, the old, he is clearly contrasting for those who had the old covenant, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And they had the glorious truths of the kingdom and the, the word that they had, but they missed it. They didn't get it at all. But I think he's also telling us that the glory of the gospel is seen in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's seen in the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant. That Christ is present from beginning to end in all of the scriptures. And when we begin to understand, we begin to see that, we show it every opportunity in every dimension, every way we can where Christ is shown either revealed in some way or the need of a Messiah, of a deliverer is, is shown in some way throughout the Old and the New Testament. And we show that and show how Jesus is the fulfillment of that because Jesus said with his coming, the kingdom of God is now at hand. He is the one who inaugurates the fulfillment of the kingdom. And so when you show the Old, it's just sharing all the Old Testament truth and showing Christ in all the Scripture. Side note, commercial, not next week, but beginning in February, we'll be doing a, an overview survey of the Old Testament for about, I don't know how long it'll take because I don't know how often Camper's going to be preaching yet. He hasn't told me, but uh, I have asked him how much. But over the next several weeks, we'll be looking at uh, an overview of at least the Old Testament narratives. Not all of it, but enough that you will get the sense of it and we will show Christ and the gospel from Genesis on because it's there. And when we show the old part, we're showing the glory of Christ in the Old Testament. When we show the new, we're showing what is clearly revealed in the New Testament, both in the Gospels. And as these same guys who didn't get it, now finally get it in their letters and the epistles, we just share the glory of Christ, the glory of the kingdom. That's the natural byproduct. Let me wrap it up. Began the series in, for with, a, with a very specific intention that we would be able to enjoy the the beauty of of the kingdom we have a shared understanding of of what the kingdom is and, and the reason for that is because i believe very firmly that understanding about the kingdom is vital to our understanding the heart and the mind of god and you can't have a relationship with somebody if you don't understand their mind and the heart you can have an acquaintance you can bump into them from now uh, uh, from time to time but if you don't know anything about how they think and what they value, it's tough to call that a relationship. And so understanding the kingdom, Jesus has presented the heart of God, the plan of God, the promises of God in a, in a stained glass window uh, composite form here in these parables that we see the kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate, the centrality of Christ in that, the reign of Christ for our hearts and lives, and some of the values that are both internally and propelling us outward and along the way that we can have a relationship with God that is deepened and informed. It's important that we understand as part of the stained glass window that we are all apart. If we are in Christ, we then become one of the pains. Now, in a good way, not pains, you know, like uh, pain in the necks, but pains in the window. We are uniquely made and formed and colored in order to bring pleasure to God and also to be a demonstration to the world 
of what the kingdom is like, every one of you. And my hope for all of us who are here this morning is that we would not only be a people who are kingdom-oriented, committed to mission and the advancement of the kingdom in this world, but we would be a people who also deeply treasure the gospel of the kingdom and all of its promises that God has given to us. Corporately for Grace Covenant Church, my, my hope is that not only will we be known to be a church that turns our eyes toward the kingdom and it, we are governed by Christ and by His rule, but that the kingdom of God would be demonstrated in our midst by our life together. It's said that the kingdom of God is, a, that the church is a, is a colony of heaven. What's a colony? A colony is simply an extension of some other body that lives by the same rules, by the same standards, and under the same governing authority. We are a colony of heaven. We don't experience all the benefits of it. We are not in the direct physical presence of God. He is present spiritually with us at all times. But nevertheless, we are guided, we are empowered, we are comforted, we are corrected, we are instructed all by the king who is reigning physically in heaven and who will reign physically in heaven for what we will with, be with him one day. But in the meantime, when we live together in, in accordance to the kingdom principles, not only are we reminded and get a taste of what is to come, we are now a picture of what is to come, or we should be. I hope we will be. I pray we will be. We are living vessels demonstrating the glory and the grace and the love of God as it's expressed to one another and to the world around us. May the kingdom come. May God's will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. Let me pray. Our Father, as we come this morning and consider this passage, I do pray that you would help us to ask and give truthful answers to the penetrating question, even if we ask only ourselves. For you have asked, because you have chosen to reveal this question. Do we understand? I pray that you would enable us to be both truthful and hopeful that where we find ourselves coming short, we would realize that there is not only need for growth, but opportunity for growth. And that you have promised to be at work in us until we all grow into full maturity of Christ as one body of whom Christ is the head. Lord, that is our dream though I may be the greatest offender and hindrance to it at times, I pray by your grace, day by day, we would see it more in our reality until the day that Christ returns and we see it in its full reality.